Welcome to the JNMP podcast. I'm Harriet Vickers. Coming up, a clinical guide to the genetics of ischemic stroke. Pankaj Sharma talks us through the monogenic disorders to be aware of, as well as how far we've got with deciphering the blockbuster, sporadic ischemic stroke. So it's difficult to say this is the number of genes. What we can say is there's no one smoking gun, there's no one gene, but it's likely to be a whole collection of genes that either interact with each other or with the environment. But before we get to that, a look at a neurosurgical controversy, that of the best mode of radiation to treat patients with a limited number of brain metastases. Does whole brain radiation significantly damage cognition compared to targeted delivery? And are any blanket mopping up effects worth it? Clark Chen, Vice Chairman of Neurosurgery at the University of California, San Diego, talked me through his review. Historically, patients with tumors going to the brain are treated with whole brain radiation therapy. Uh, In the early days, this is in large part because there really are very few other options most of the chemotherapies that we use uh, to treat systemic cancer do not cross the blood-brain barrier. And in fact, it's estimated that less than 2% of all drugs are capable of crossing the blood-brain barrier. So chemotherapy really wasn't a very good option. Surgery alone uh, was shown in a randomized control study by Dr. Patchell to have a recurrence rate as high as 50% at the site of resection. So really, we lean heavily on radiation as the main therapy for cerebral metastasis. The controversy arose because in the 1950s and 60s, a brilliant neurosurgeon by the name of Lexell developed a modality of delivering radiation that's fundamentally different from that of radiation therapy. Historically, radiation therapy is given in two gray intimates over a span of 10 to 30 days and the whole brain is treated in this way. The, the new way of delivering radiation deliver, or develop, developed by Dr. Lexell essentially focuses a large number of beams of radiation into one focal spot so that, that one spot gets a tremendous amount of radiation while the remainder of the brain does not. The concept is not uh, unlike uh, using a magnifying glass to focus the sun, be- the sun beams in a focal spot in order to burn that spot. Now, the controversy focused on the following issue. The the practitioners who favor whole brain radiation therapy believe that the neurocognitive deficits that the patients develop following metastasis to the brain are entirely attributable to microscopic diseases growing. And so if you only treat one spot, the spot that you could see on radiography you're going to miss out on all the microscopic diseases that, um, that are growing. And as a result, these patients will suffer neurologic decline. The practitioners who favor stereotactic radiosurgery, or this, I, this method of focusing radiation on one single spot, argue that the radiation you're delivering to the rest of the brain is harming the brain as well, and that is contributing to the neurocognitive decline of the patient. And that really is the essence of the argument. Okay, so it's this trade-off between having these possible neurocognitive effects versus zapping any um, micro-metastatic foci that might be left. Precisely. Okay. And what about the um, the survival between these two methods? Because you th- would think that would be the, the primary concern. 
there's been several randomized control studies comparing the survival of patients undergoing whole brain radiation therapy versus stereotactic radio surgery. And in all of the randomized studies, there does not appear to be a significant difference in the survival of patients treated with either modality. It turns out that either modality are capable of achieving very good control of the tumor growth inside the brain. But as you know, most of these patients who have metastasis to the brain also have systemic disease. And ultimately, it is the systemic disease that most patients succumb to. And therefore, the argument really zeroes in on the cognition of the patient rather than the survival of the patient. Now, as we move forward, should there be additional innovative systemic chemotherapies or targeted therapies developed that makes systemic disease less of an issue, then the issue of recurrence in the brain may become more important. But at the present time, survival really is comparable as patients are treated with whole brain versus uh, stereotactic radiation. So what, is there much evidence for the effects um, on neurocognition of whole brain radiation or stereotactic radiosurgery? The study of, this, uh, of the effect of the treatment is extremely difficult for two reasons. The main reason is that the brain metastasis itself, the disease itself, contributes to a decline in the patient's neurocognitive status. For instance, you've heard of the term chemo brain. Patients who receive systemic chemotherapy, their cognition is inherently impaired. So how does one dissociate from the, the effect of all the treatment and or the growth of the tumor, the effect of these phenomenons on neurocognition versus the effect of the radiation? That's an extremely difficult question to address. And in fact, if you survey the literature, you will find papers, retrospective series, that says, gosh, whole brain has no effect at all. And in fact, all the neurocognitive decline is entirely attributable to the disease itself and or the chemotherapy. And then you'll find on the other spectrum, uh, papers arguing, gosh, all of the effects of neurocognitive decline can be attributed to radiation. So the retrospective studies have been extremely varied in their conclusions, and that in part adds to the uncertainty of the experts in the field in terms of how to assess the issue. The second difficulty is that until very recently, we don't have any standardized measures of neurocognition. If you think about it, it's very easy to look at an image on a screen and say, gosh, that tumor is bigger or smaller. But how do you go about testing someone and see whether or not their quote-unquote cognition has been changed? Does cognition mean memory? Does cognition mean your ability to uh, perform what's called executive function, that is to change between tasks? Does cognition mean your ability to uh, trace a figure or reproduce a figure? So until very recently, there weren't standardized tests for what cognition actually means. And therefore, the the field was flooded with essentially retrospective and anecdotal series. In the recent years, though, this has changed significantly. And we have now have standardized tests that many investigators subscribe to. And we have randomized 
control studies that looks at the effect of whole brain radiation. And in fact, this is a major focus in the review article. Could you give us the, the top line messages from your results then? Where does that leave us in terms of this debate? Of course, I think when we review the literature, I think definitively the, the randomized control studies looking at prophylactic whole brain radiation does show that, as we would anticipate based upon first principles, that whole brain radiation has significant toxicity to uh, a patient's neurocognitive function. A reasonable crude estimate is that it increases the risk of neurocognition deficit by about 20 to 30 percent. Realizing that many patients who have cerebral metastasis will, without radiation, also develop neurocognitive deficits. So I think that is a definitive statement. The, the next area of concern of comparing stereotactic radiation versus whole brain radiation, I think that there's a few studies demonstrating there may be both early and late toxicity of whole brain radiation that exceeds uh, those that would be expected from stereotactic radiosurgery. However, the data there uh, has not been conclusive, and the choice of whether to treat a patient with brain metastasis uh, with whole brain radiation or radiosurgery is currently a, uh, a matter of expert opinion. Right, okay. So even if the evidence at the moment can't clearly guide us um, in either one direction for, for using one of these modes or the other, are there any clinical recommendations that you could make? Should we be particularly supporting patients who have whole brain radiation in, t in terms of their cognition? Are there certain subsets who might be more suited to one or the other? Is there anything we can do now? There are subsets of patients who should get whole brain radiation. For example, if they have many, many metastases that are spread throughout the brain, and there are these patients who whole brain is the right choice. I think the issue really uh, is most pertinent to those patients who have a few well-defined metastases that can be safely treated with radiation. My personal opinion is that for those patients who have good neurocognition, who have limited number of metastases, in whom neurocognition is a priority in terms of clinical outcome, my personal recommendation would be uh, stereotactic radiosurgery. In my practice, I typically reserve whole brain radiation for those patients who really have no other options. Uh, and, and that would be one recommendation. Other recommendations involve um, investigative efforts to derive technology or medicines that may ameliorate the effect of radiation on neurocognition. For example, um, the US RTOG has a trial looking at amenadine, uh, a medicine which may potentially palliate some of the cognitive suppressive effects of radiation. There's a school of thought in radiation where most of the neurogenesis, the formation of new neurons, occurs in the area of the brain called hippocampus. And so their efforts to test whether or not you could spare the hippocampus from radiation 
and to determine whether or not the patients will have better cognition as a result of sparing this particular part of the brain that is so important for the, the ability of the patient to remember, to recall. And so uh, I, I think that the other recommendation would be that recognizing the problem, we should uh, design uh, novel treatment paradigms to address these problems. Clark, thank you very much for, for talking us through your paper. Well, thank you again for having me. Joining me now to tell us what practicing clinicians need to know about the genetics of ischemic stroke is Pankaj Sharma, director of the Imperial College Cerebrovascular Research Unit. To, to kick this off, um, how big a, a contributor are genetic factors to the occurrence of ischemic stroke? Do we have a clear idea of this? No, we don't. That's a good and actually quite difficult question to to answer. There's no doubt that stroke runs in families, so that gives us an indication that there is an underlying genetic etiology to stroke. But actually identifying the figures that are involved is actually very difficult because uh, stroke is an age-related disorder, which means the majority of strokes probably happen because of environmental determinants, obesity, the kind of foods people eat, lack of exercise, high blood pressure, and all of those environmental factors contribute to stroke. But it probably suggests that the genetics of stroke influences the susceptibility to the outcome. So if someone has genes that are likely to cause stroke, adding in an environmental factor such as smoking or obesity or high blood pressure probably predisposes them more. So it's difficult to tease out exactly what the numbers are, but I think there's little doubt that stroke genes influence the etiology depending on the environment to which people expose themselves to. But if you have a family history of stroke, that probably means you do have stroke susceptibility genes within you. Okay, so it's a complex picture then. Correct, absolutely. In fact, it's actually one of the what's called complex disorders, multifactorial disorders, where no one gene is responsible, but a variety of genes interact with each other with environmental factors. Okay. Um, so a lot of your review covers uh, sporadic ischemic stroke, um, but there are some monogenetic disorders as well, aren't there? Yes, and in fact, the monogenic disorders actually probably gave us the idea that genes influence the sporadic disorder. If you find them in single gene disorders, then it's quite possible that some of those genes or other genes are likely to influence the more common one. And to be honest, in terms of public health, it's not the single gene disorders that are going to count to a great deal to influence the outcome in stroke or predict stroke or indeed influence the drug treatment of stroke. It's going to be the big sporadic cause, which is the vast majority of stroke in the world. But actually, the single gene disorders give us the ideas that we can pursue. And the first one of the monogenic disorders that's covered in the review is called Cadicil. And that probably is the commonest single gene disorder that causes stroke. But yes, you're quite right. There's a variety of monogenic ones, some of which people would have heard of Cadicil, sickle cell disease, Fabry's disease. Others are less well known, such as Caricil, because they're rarer and only specialists in the field will probably have, uh, have known about them. So what are the main things that doctors should know about Cadicil? And Cadicil is a cerebral autosomal dominant arteriopathy with subcortical infarcts and leukoencephalopathy. 
So I think the key thing is that Caddisil is a common, a common disease, relatively speaking, within the monogenic disorders. And I think if you're a stroke specialist or neurologist, the key thing you need to keep in mind when a patient comes to you is whether the age of the onset of the stroke, if it's a relatively young stroke, and I define young as less than 50 or 65 years of age, but certainly less than 50. If there is a family history, then that often should point people towards a diagnosis of Caddisil. If there's underlying other comorbidities such as migraine, particularly classical migraine, where there's an aura associated with a young stroke, that should highlight whether there's an underlying caddisil as well. But certainly the family history and the presence of migraine, the presence of other comorbidities such as depression, epilepsy has also been associated with this. So other diseases in the presence of stroke, which would be slightly unusual diseases, should make a stroke physician or a neurologist think of the condition. MRI brain scan imaging has been shown to be relatively specific and sensitive to pick up Caddisil. If you have high-intensity signal changes in the temporal lobes bilaterally, that should certainly be uh, the temporal lobes, rather, that should certainly uh, indicate that uh, someone should consider Caddisil as a potential diagnosis. And there is a gene test for it as well. So it's one of those conditions where it's important to identify. It's important to identify not just because you can have a conversation with the patient and explain to them what the condition is and what their prognosis is, but also because it will influence their family and their offspring as well. And also that we can then target specific treatments to the condition as well. So we make sure that we're managing their vascular risk factors a lot more aggressively than perhaps would otherwise have been the case. And and Caracil is the the recessive form of uh, Caddisil. Have I got that right? Correct. So Caddisil is actually the autosomally dominant form where there's a 50-50 chance of passing it on to your offspring, whereas Caracil is the recessive form uh, which means that it's much more difficult to predict whether the offspring is likely to be affected or not. And you mentioned Fabry's disease earlier. Could you tell me a bit about this? So Fabry's disease is another one of the inherited disorders. It's actually a congenital metabolic disorder, which is caused by a deficiency in the activity of uh, alpha-galactosidase A uh, enzyme. And that results in accumulation of abnormal lipids, in the endothelial cells and the myocardial cells and in the neurons as well. And that causes a wide variety of disease, but from the neurologist's point of view, it can cause uh, stroke. It's an X-linked disorder, um, but uh, but uh, uh, females are known to be carriers of the condition as well. Mm. The, the next one you mention in the review uh, in terms of the monogenic disorders is uh, MELAS, that's mitochondrial myopathy, encephalopathy, lactic acidosis and stroke-like episodes. Could you give us some headline messages for for practicing clinicians about that? It's a very well-recognized disorder. It's not very common, but it's a very well-recognized disorder. And the abnormality occurs rather than in the genomic DNA, which it does for all the other conditions that we've been talking about. This one occurs in the mitochondria, which is the energy factory, energy-making factory cells of the body. So the mitochondrial DNA, that's where the abnormality uh, lies. And uh, the prevalence varies, but it's thought to be about um, around eight people per 100,000 in England are said to be affected, but it varies around the world depending on the epidemiological studies that 
uh, one looks at. But the key thing for a practicing neurologist is that they do cause stroke-like episodes. And again, these patients tend to be younger patients than you would normally expect. And uh, the diagnosis can be confirmed usually on a muscle biopsy. But I think the key thing to say about all of these disorders is that if you get a young patient with a stroke, that's the time to think about these monogenic disorders. And what I've tended to do in recent years is isolate those young people and put them into a special clinic, and it's called the Young Stroke Clinic. So that what I do when I get referrals, if they're under the age of 50, I immediately put the appointment into my Young Stroke Clinic. And that means that registrars that do that clinic, when I do that clinic, we're actually much more tuned to these monogenic disorders. And if you see these patients, these young patients in just a general neurology clinic, often in the hustle and bustle of things, these things occasionally are missed. So that's why I would certainly advise if there are doctors who are interested in these conditions, they should do a young stroke clinic. Great. So you're less likely to, to miss these disorders. On to the sporadic ischemic stroke. Firstly, what, what about the genetics of, of white matter disease? Do we know much about that? Yes, the genetics of white matter disease is an interesting uh, topic, and it's currently coming under intense scrutiny as well, actually. Uh, it's thought that white matter disease does have an inherited component. It's not quite clear, to be honest, uh, what the extent of that inherited component is. It certainly seems to run in families. And with the advent of... Uh, easier availability of MRI, we're finding these white matter lesions more and more in people. And so the goalpost in terms of the epidemiology certainly seems to be moving. But there's been uh, some genetic studies which have found a genetic locus that has been associated with white matter disease, and that is discussed in the review as well. Okay. So, yes, yeah, so there's um, plenty more on that if, if listeners want to, to go and look at the review. And with ischemic stroke, um, how many genes have we been able to identify that are related with it? That's a very difficult question to, to answer, and it will depend on who one asks. The reason I say it's difficult is because the strategies that have been used to identify genes have changed over the last few years. Just a few years ago, we used to use the model of association studies where cases and controls were compared against each other with the investigator's favorite candidate gene. And so if an investigator had a, a, a gene that they had been studying and they were interested in, they would compare and contrast the frequency of the abnormality of that candidate gene between the cases and the controls. And if there was a difference in frequency, then, hey, presto, one would announce that that's a potential gene for a sporadic stroke. The problem with those studies, and they were very powerful studies, the problem with those studies is that often the number of cases and controls that were used were small, and so the power of the analysis was actually quite poor, and therefore replication of these studies tended to be not readily available or readily doable and didn't stand up to long-term scrutiny. And now we've moved into the, the model of genome-wide studies where the investigators are not asked what your favorite candidate gene is, but they're actually asked to study the entire human genome without an a priori hypothesis. And so the genes that were identified in the candidate gene model, there are probably about half a dozen or so that have, uh, that have been uh, identified that are likely to be susceptibility genes. 
but there are an increasing number of genetic loci that have been identified in genome-wide studies, few of which actually cross over to the candidate gene model. So the loci tend to be different from those that have that uh, have been identified using a candidate gene approach. So it's difficult to say this is the number of genes. What we can say is there's no one smoking gun, there's no one gene, but it's likely to be a whole collection of genes that either interact with each other or with the environment. What's the future that you, you see in this field? What, um, where do you think we'll be in, in five or ten years' time? So I, I think one of the saddest things that uh, is happening has happened in identifying stroke genes, and this probably doesn't apply to just stroke genes, it probably applies to the majority of these studies, is that the vast majority of this work has been done in Caucasian populations. And ethnic minority populations have really been uh, uh, understudied, under-investigated across the world. And there are a variety of reasons for this. One of the reasons is that funding just happens to be more available in the West for this kind of thing. And so uh, Western populations tend to benefit from these studies. And uh, ethnic minority populations have been slightly left behind. And although we call them ethnic minority populations, actually, the vast majority of the world is not Caucasian. So they are actually ethnic majority populations, and they have been understudied. So the Asian population, uh, the Middle Eastern population, the African population, they've hardly been studied at all. And I think the big thing that's going to happen in the next 10 years is that we're going to be able to identify genes in those populations and compare and contrast those genes with the Caucasian population to see whether there are actually specific stroke genes that attack South Asians, that attack Africans, or that attack Chinese or the Middle Eastern populations. And that will then lead on, hopefully, to pharmacological therapies targeted specifically to different ethnic groups. Thanks there to Pankaj Sharma. For more practical clinical guidance, this month we've got another podcast put together with the Association of British Neurologists, this time on headache. Callum Duncan from Aberdeen Royal Infirmary and a roundtable of experts discuss advances in the field, particularly the pathophysiology and management of cluster headache, treating migraine and new onset daily headache. You can find that one alongside this one on the JNMP podcast page. Next month, the spreading of ALS lesions and also new research into the secondary progressive phase of MS. Come back then. If you've enjoyed this podcast, don't forget you can access our entire back catalogue as well as podcasts from across the BMJ's range of specialty journals at podcast.bmj.com. Thanks for listening.